Excellent. Good afternoon, good evening, good night. <laughs> Some of you uh, have already heard this message today, so either you just didn't understand it the first time, which means I'm terrible, or it was so good you wanted to come back and hear it again. Um, in pride, I say it's probably the latter. It definitely is, no. Um, and some of you are hearing this for the first time, and uh, anyone who's listening online, um, very welcome. Um, we're continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke. As uh, Servants Church uh, does, we work through, we teach through uh, books of the Bible, um, believing that nothing should be missed out, that all of it's really important for us and can help us grow. So today, uh, I've been given Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. A fairly short uh, passage, uh, but apparently I managed to speak on it for 45 minutes this morning. Um, so that's how long I can, what I can do with nine verses. Um, just, to, just to recall, I managed to do something like two and a half chapters in two chronicles in the same amount of time. So I don't know how it works. Um, uh, that was like a year and a half ago or something I taught on two chronicles. That was a really hard to teach on two and a half chapters of the Bible in just 45 minutes. But today I've got nine verses. So we can really get into it, really figure out what does God want to teach us today? Why has he recorded this in his word for us? Um, all right, let's get into it. Uh, Luke 13, chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All those 18 on whom the Tower of Salaam fell and killed them, do you think... That uh, they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So, uh, it, this is... Uh, there are certain words as Christians that, uh, unless you're a certain type of Christian, you tend to, to back off from. And repentance, I think, is... It's fair to say repentance is one of them. Perishing, these aren't nice words. I'd much rather speak far longer on the love of God and the sacrifice and grace and mercy and all these other terrific things. But this is why we go through verse by verse through uh, the scriptures so we don't avoid things like repentance, so we don't avoid things uh, like perishing or even suffering. We need, we, there's something for us to learn here and we want to get into it. So the first before it even gets into it, it says, in, in the first verse, it says, there were some present at that very time. Well, what very time? What's the context? When is this happening? Well, Jesus has been teaching and warning now to crowds uh, in this area for about 
the last chapter and a half. So we can actually go back and just see what has been being talked about over the last uh, few weeks, through teachings at Servants Church. But obviously, if you weren't here, you can um, go back and read in chapters 11 and chapters 12. Um, we have all these warnings, these parables, and these uh, calls uh, to right behaviour. And so they were on the screen. When, when did the screen stop working? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm holding you directly responsible. <laughs> um, okay, so I've got a few here. I've got a list of a few things that come up in chapters 11 and 12. And, uh, and so I just want to read these out to you to remind us of some of the things Jesus has been t- teaching about so that, when we, so that we understand uh, what the uh, Jews are responding to in this passage. Okay, so he's talked about, uh, he says, woe to the Pharisees and the lawyers. He's warned against the leaven of the Pharisees. He's taught that we should have no fear. He's, uh, he's taught us that we should acknowledge Christ before men and let the Spirit teach us. He's, uh, he's uh, he told the parable of the rich fool and he's encouraged us to be laying up our treasure in heaven. He's uh, reminded us not to be anxious about our life, but to seek his kingdom. And he's told us we must be ready, that much is required of us. He said that he didn't come to bring peace, but division. Will you be on the side of the Messiah or will you not? Uh, are you interpreting the time? Are you seeing what's around you? Do you have your eyes open? And have you settled with your accuser? Are you making amends or are you, letting, uh, are you hurting people along the way and not, not apologising for it? Are you making amends? And there's, uh, there was a bit of an ominous tone right at the end of chapter 12 as he tells you to settle with your accuser before you get to the courtroom. And that's quite haunting, isn't it, as we think that we're approaching a courtroom where we're gonna, are we going to have to justify, we're going to have to deal with the, all the things that we've done and that weight, the weight of what we've done. And he says, there is time for you to make amends. There's, there's an opportunity here to make amends. And, and unfortunately, though, as we get into chapter 13, which I read, we read before, suddenly we realise that they've deflected. They're deflecting. They are saying, oh, yes, we all know all about people who need to repent or who didn't have time to repent. Do you know about the Galileans? How do you remember the Galileans? They... Uh, they were killed by Pilate and their blood was mingled with the sacrifices. What an awful thing to happen to someone. They, those people, they must have been really bad sinners. Those people, they must have been really bad. And they're deflecting. They're talking about the other people they know who need to repent. They're talking about the other people they know who need to change. And in, uh, instead, Jesus, as we'll get on to, reminds us that we need to be looking at ourselves first. We need to be looking at our hearts first and realising where we need to change. Not just, oh, look at them, look at them, they need to change. I've definitely heard a preach and thought, oh, this person that I can think of, maybe my, someone in my family or one of my friends, they really need to hear this message. Uh, but instead, I need to hear this message. It's so easy to not apply to ourselves and start to apply things to other people. And this is what they're doing here. This is what the Pharisees are doing, or, or, or the Jews, by bringing up this story, by gossiping, really, by gossiping. As we'll talk about as we do communion, communion, communion later on, we need to examine ourselves. We need to think about our behaviour before, and, and think about how we're living our lives before uh, we take communion. And uh, the Bible holds that very seriously. Okay, so let's move on a little bit more. All right, so there, there, there is a question asked, isn't there, here? As we look at this passage about all this suffering and death, 
we see that uh, is asking a question of well, why does suffering exist and why does death exist? This is a huge question. And if you're looking at the Old Testament, I can see why perhaps there are certain passages that make you think that maybe if you are suffering, it's because of your sin or something that you've done. Uh, but in the New Testament especially, and when Jesus is confronted with, with these situations, he never says, oh, that person sinned, that's why they're suffering that way. Instead, we, I've got a few examples here um, uh, that I'd like to read out to you. And uh, for example, um, in John 9, the disciples confront a blind man and they ask this question. They say, um, Jesus, who sinned? This man who's blind or his parents? And Jesus responded, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So he says, you're asking the wrong question. Instead, instead you should be asking, okay, how can we see God's glory work in this suffering and in this pain? And we know that um, good people and evil people experience the good things in life. It says in Matthew 5, verse 4, he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain. Rain is a good thing because of farming. and things. Rain on the just and on the unjust. So, so good things come to good and bad people. And in this passage, uh, it says, you know, do you think that these Galileans, these Galileans who died and suffered so terribly, that they are worse sinners? And the answer is no, they're not worse sinners. Instead, we need to look at ourselves and we need to stop gossiping about other people and the issues going on in other people's lives and reflect on and maybe ask others to help us with the issues going on in our own lives. And this, I think, when you get these verses in, in the New Testament, especially about judging one another, I think that's what it's really getting at. In Luke 6, verse 42, says, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? We desperately need help. We desperately need to change. So are we really going to start pointing out the faults in others before we've started dealing with our own issues? In John 8, verse 7, there's a woman caught in adultery. And Jesus doesn't say that maybe that there shouldn't be a consequence for her, but he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And they all walked away because none of them could say that they, were, that they were sinless. They all were sinners and they couldn't judge because they themselves were sinners. So, and, and this is, the, this is, yeah. <laughs> um, before I go on, I want to talk about this story. So Galileans, we think Galileans, especially in this culture, Galileans were, were not great. They were from the bad area of the country. They mixed with foreigners far too much and they, they were less pure than you know, the nice people who lived in Jerusalem, who they kept themselves really pure and good in Jerusalem, right? But up in the north, up in Galilee, they were surrounded by the, the Samaritans and they were surrounded by other, Tur you know, modern day Turkey and things like that. So they were, they, they didn't stick to stuff like they, like they really should. And of course I'm being sarcastic. Um, and, and obviously Pilate, we know from Pilate that he was even worse. Pilate's one that killed them and desecrated their sacrifices by mixing their blood. And it's interesting and it's, it's humbling that Pilate here in, uh, we've heard him, he was briefly mentioned in Luke chapter 3. Then we hear this horrific story of what Pilate did in Luke 13. The next time we hear of him, I think is in Luke chapter 23, when he's the one to judge Jesus. 
and he judges Jesus innocent three times. So an evil man like Pilate was able to see that Jesus was innocent three times. And yet here we've got Jews who, who even though they see themselves as pure and holy, they, they, don't get, they don't get Jesus. They can't grapple with Jesus. It's almost like he's so good, they think he's bad. It doesn't make sense. They don't get it. Jesus goes further and gives them another story to, not to gossip about, but another story to kind of push home his point. He says, oh, you know, what about Jerusalem? What about that tower in Jerusalem that fell down? If Jerusalem is so good, why did something bad happen there then? No, it's not about where bad things happen. It's not about that. It's about the fact that he says, no, if you don't repent, you will likewise perish. No matter who you are, wherever you're from, whatever your background is, you're in the same boat as the rest of us. And that's one of the amazing reasons why we can be so inclusive as a church. Not because we, um, I think, I think in, the world seems to want to say that we should be so inclusive in the sense that we accept everyone and we don't want anyone to change. But the reason why a church can be inclusive is because we all come in and we say, we all need to change. We all recognise, hey, I fall short. I'm not going to judge you because I fall short. You're saying you fall short too? Great, let's fall short together. And let's love each other, support each other, grow together. And so this good news, uh, you see it, as it sounds like a a strange thing to call good news, but in Romans 3, verse 10 to 12, there's this diagnosis of mankind where it says uh, that there is no one righteous, no, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. In Luke 18, so in a few chapters' time, Jesus responds to someone and says, no one is good except God alone. And in Galatians 3, uh, it speaks of equality. In the sen- it says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So there's this, hey, we're all in the same boat. We all are sinners. We all need to be here together helping each other. And no matter your background, we just we want to be this inclusive community of people who welcomes anyone who's just willing to say, I've not got it together. Why do we come together? There's this, uh, and I sung it this morning. I hadn't planned to sing it this morning. But there's this song um, by, what's the band called? Sunday, does anyone know the band? Sunday Service Choir who has something to do with Kanye West, but I can never figure out exactly the link. Um, Because they released an album, which was just them, so I don't don't know. Um, And they had a song called um, uh, Balm in Gilead, and the the song just sung over and over again. It's like a a proper cool Pentecostal music team. And uh, they were just singing over and over again, there is a balm in Gilead, there is a balm in Gilead, over and over again. And and I was like, what is this balm in Gilead? and what is it? Like, what's going on? And so, and I thought, why do I not know this? It must be a biblical reference, right? It's a Christian song. I've got to understand it. And it comes from uh, Jeremiah 8, verse 22, and it says, Is there no balm in Gilead? And is there no doctor there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? And Jeremiah is grieving. He sees the suffering. He sees the suffering coming upon his people. And he says, is there no relief? Is there no relief from this life? Is there no relief from this pain that we experience? And as the Sunday service choir say, sing so well, yes, there is. Praise God, there is relief 
for us. There is pain relief. There is a balm in Gilead. There is a doctor, a doctor that we need far more than any earthly doctor. And I had to apologize to Adam after this morning when I commented on, and not even Adam, definitely not Adam, is helping me in what I really need, which is the doctor, the healer, the spiritual healer, as well as our physical healer, Jesus. We need Jesus. We need to be helped. The diagnosis is in. We've got the results back. We shall not ignore the diagnosis that we need help. And we're not here to throw in each other's faces. Hey, you need help, man. We're not like that. We don't want to be like that. We want to say, I need help. You need help. Let's help each other. And let's come to Jesus. Let's seek Jesus together who promises to help us. So all of the gospel of Luke is good news. Sometimes we focus so much in, and I, obviously I, I get this, we should focus in on the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the, the climax of the gospel story. But even in, in Luke chapter 13, when it says that, you must, that um, unless you repent, you will perish, that's good news too. The whole of the gospel of Luke is good news because when God calls us, when Jesus calls us to repent, that means that we can change. That means we can change. Okay, so like this morning, so if you were here this morning, you can't play this game, okay, which is the guess the Greek game, okay? <laughs> guess the Greek, okay? So I'm going to say a Greek word, an old, an old ancient Greek word, and you're going to guess what it means, okay? And I know who was here this morning, all right? <laughs> Car- cardia. Heart. Think outside the box, Jess. Cardia. Okay, think, uh, think cardio. Heart. Heart. Very good. Well, you should have said it louder. <laughs> um, this is an easier one. Cosmos. Universe. Universe. The world. So when, uh, you know, when it says, God, uh, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the cosmos, that he gave his one and only son. Uh, psyche. Brain, yeah. Well, like soul, like yourself, like your inner being. Uh, Gyne. (laughs) Gyne. Gynecology, no. Woman, just means woman. Nothing weird, (laughs) right? (laughs) Metanoia. Metanoia means change your mind. You might know meta, like metamorphosis, like changing. Metanoia. It means change your mind. So sometimes we hear the word repentance and maybe you've been shout, shout, shouted at in the street, repent, or maybe I've never actually heard someone shout at me on the street, repent, but that's the, that's the idea that we're told that that's when the word is used. I've never actually seen it done that way. But, if we, but so for some reason as a culture, we're kind of scared of this word repentance often. But if we change, if we just change it, to, it means change your mind. Suddenly it's not as intimidating. And so if we read, if we go back, go back and we read Jesus saying, no, I tell you, but unless you change your mind, you will likewise perish. We can start to ask some really good questions. Change our mind about what? What should we be changing our mind, mind about? What, what ways would Jesus recommend I change my mind? And also, who is asking me to change my mind? Because if if a random person came up to you in the street and told you to change your mind about something, you'd be like, who are you to tell me to change my mind? 
If a policeman came up to you and said you were speeding, I'd change your mind about doing that again. <laughs> you might go, yes, I'm scared of seeing you again, officer. Um, and if God in the flesh tells you to change your mind, I, I'd start listening. I would start to be like, yes, yes, sir. What, what, yes, Lord, what would you like me to change, your, change my mind about? What can I do? And so, obviously, I recommend reading chapters 11 and 12 with that mindset of God is asking me to change my mind about these things. He's expecting that it will, it will take a switch in your head, it will take a shift. And I think as well as reading the scripture, the more we read scripture, as we read scripture, more comes out, more things in my mind that I'm like, oh, I didn't think that way before, or oh, I didn't really want to change this, I didn't really want to do that thing, oh, I could actually be better that way, but that requires a bit of effort, that requires a bit of humility that I'd really rather not have to process and have to deal with. But when God is telling you to change your mind, then we better start listening. And it is a message of hope. If I tell you you can change your mind, you might just think, well, no, I, no, I can't. I can't. You know, I've met people that say, I, 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 I can't change. I, I always do this. I keep falling back into the same patterns of behaviour. Maybe they don't say it quite like that, but they say that they can't change. They say that, oh, oh, I was like, how was your weekend? Oh, I did the same mistake I've always made. They don't believe they can change. People think that they're just the way that they are, and maybe they blame their parents for it, or maybe they blame uh, whatever it happens to be, the culture that we live in, or, or the expectations from society, or whatever we blame for not changing. Jesus here is calling us to change, and because God calls us to change, he will help us change. And I kind of, I wish I could, and, and even this morning, I wish I could have spent a lot more time talking about how God helps us change, because that is amazing, through the Holy Spirit, how he helps us change. It's not in this passage, and so I want to kind of stick to the passage. <laughs> but, um, but especially, I mean, uh, later on in the Gospel of Luke, it talks about Jesus sending the helper, um, and in the Gospel of John as well, sending that helper who comes. And, and before, you know, and in, in Acts as well, when Jesus goes up into heaven, he tells them, you know, don't go out and start preaching yet, but wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Because it's so important that we, you know, it, it's sort of impossible to change without Jesus making it possible. And he will make it possible. He will make it possible. As we start to respond, as we start to change and seeing his authority and seeing him call us, he will help us by his Holy Spirit. He pours it out so freely. You can change. He's not being cruel. He's not setting us un unrealistic expectations. He's calling us to change and he'll empower us to change. He will do it. And this repentance, this changing of mind is met with forgiveness. It's met with forgiveness in the ways that we will fail to change, because we will, we'll fail to change, and the ways that we haven't changed quite when we should have done, and the, way, and the things we messed up and the things we did in the past. He gives us this clean slate. He gives us this fresh start, this new start. His mercies are new every morning. But this was cemented, this was made concrete once and for all at all times on the cross when Jesus died on the cross. And we see this so beautifully in... Um, so you remember when Jesus was on the cross, he had two, met two criminals on either side of him. And the Gospel of Luke is actually the only person to record uh, what I'm about to read to you, which is here. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. 
Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This criminal's fresh start was paradise. <laughs> he didn't have time to jump off the cross, you know. He, he died. He died in a real death then, but he didn't perish. I think there's a difference in scripture. I think, I think because it says repent, uh, or otherwise you will perish. So if we repent, we, we won't perish. And yet we still die. And, I, and actually, I spent a few weeks kind of, <laughs> again, it sounds, you know, trying to figure this out, trying to understand this. And we'll get on to that a little bit more in a minute. Um, in Luke 24, verse 46, 47, this is Luke's kind of version of the Great Commission. As he sends out his disciples, he says, this is what it is written. This is verse, uh, tw- chapter 24, verse 46. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now, I love to tell, just tell people about Jesus or, or, or just bring him up in conversation or preach about love. And I'm, I'm bad at not preaching the change your mind part, the repentance part. Because repentance, when we acknowledge I need to change, that I've done things wrong, forgiveness flows in. And forgiveness flows in, in his name, in the name of Jesus, because on the cross, he absorbed our sin, he took on our shame, and we are made clean and ready again to change and ready again to become more godly the way he would have us live. And we see this beautifully. I, I love the prodigal son story. I feel every time I read it or think about it, I just there's more more to kind of get out of it. And uh, and the prodigal, you know, this this son, this terrible son, this, this as the story goes, this terrible son went to his father and said, "Give me my inheritance now. I don't want to wait. Give me my inheritance now." And he takes all this money and he goes off and he squanders it, uh, spends it on prostitutes and and uh, gambling and all the kind of terrible things you can probably think of. And uh, and he ends up wasting it all away and realising he's got nothing and, uh, and being in a pigsty, which for Jews especially was not a good thing. And, and so he's just at the end of himself. He's heading for, for perishing. I wouldn't have been survived, surprised if he'd commit suicide or something. You know, he would, have, he would have not just died, but perished, separated from his father. So he turns back to his father. And he thinks in his mind, if I go back to my father, I'll just be a slave. I could be a slave for him. It'd be better than this. So he goes back to his father, and as his father sees him coming from a long way off, and he, uh, the story goes as he kind of picks up everything and he runs out towards his son. So he does something shameful. It would have been a shameful for a man to have run above a certain age, and he would gather, and just gathering up and running through his town or whatever, and being seen by his neighbours, shaming himself. That would have been probably the more talk of the town afterwards, I bet, than actually the son even coming back. He absorbed the shame of his son and he then puts his son and throws a party for him and so we see this repentance we see this turning back we see how it's met with forgiveness we think about there's no more perishing there's the party so 
So let's talk a little bit more about perishing. I, I, I really have talked a little bit about perishing, but let's think about it a bit more. What is perishing? I think about Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve. They had one job, not to eat that fruit. <laughs> one job, but they, they did. They, instead of eating from the tree of life, the fruit of life, they chose the fruit of knowledge. And so when they ate the fruit of knowledge, they lost the fruit of life, and they start to perish. Not simply physical death. It included that, but it wasn't simply that. It was the separation from God and not receiving those promises anymore. And we see those promises even clearer. You think about the men in the... The, the, the Israelites, as they escaped Egypt in the Exodus, they had... It shouldn't have taken them that long to walk to the Promised Land. It shouldn't have taken that long for them to get to Israel. I know it's, it's a long way. It would have taken a few months or something, but it shouldn't have taken 40 years to get there, and yet they kept getting distracted, they kept falling into sin, and only two people, Caleb and Joshua, managed to get all the way from Egypt all the way into the Promised Land. They're the only two people who received the promise. All the rest died in the wilderness. And it wasn't just dying physically, it was never receiving the promise of the Promised Land. It was never having, being, receiving what God had prepared for them. And then eventually, you know, through Joshua and, and everyone, you know, they end up, they do get into the land, or their descendants do, because of the, promise, uh, the great uh, promises of God. They are in the land, and they told, you know, keep, keep the commandments, keep following God, worship at the temple, uh, or uh, I'll raise up nations around you, and you'll go into exile. And what do they do? They stop following their God. They start worshipping other idols. They start sacrificing their children to other gods from other nations. They do horrific things, and God does bring exile. So they lose their place in the promised land. They lose their place in the promised land. And they perished. And so instead, it's really interesting, at the end of Luke chapter 13, Jesus is talking about, he's weeping over Jerusalem you know, arrogant Jerusalem that thinks it's got it all together. He weeps over Jerusalem and says, he says something about the prophets dying in Jerusalem, um, and he says that he would, to, he, I think he uses the word perish to describe what he's going to do in Jerusalem. So he's going to perish in Jerusalem. Even though he's just said, repent or perish, he's going to perish. He's got nothing to repent of, but he's going to perish. He's got, he's got no reason to die, and yet he does for us. And he absorbs our sin and he absorbs our shame. And we know, and through him we no longer have to perish. As I already talked about, the man on the cross who, uh, who repented, he did die, but he didn't perish. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. I think it says just after that, oh death, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your victory? You know, something like that. I should have written it down. Um, and I love the way it puts it. I feel like it really helps me understand the dis distinction between death and, and perishing. It helps me understand it in 1 Thessalonians 4, the, verses 13 and 14. It says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Without, without Jesus, 
we, we have no hope. With Jesus, though we die, we will live. We will live with him. And I, I think about this at work quite a lot. I mean, it's heartbreaking. I, I, I work at the hospital, I see people die. I look after people, they die. Not everyone. You know, the hospital's quite good, a lot of people go home again. Um, but there are a few, but there's a few people, you can say it's the right time or whatever kind of phrases we want to use, but they die. And, and it's heartbreaking. And I, I don't always know the state of their heart. I don't know what they think about God. I don't know how to always mentally process that. But I think about a passage like this. For those who do believe in Jesus, though they die, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Those who have fallen asleep in him, in Jesus. So we have a hope. As believers, we have a hope. We're all at different ages, but, it's made, uh, but even though working in the hospital has made me think about my own death. <laughs> Um, And some of us are closer to it than others, and I I feel almost awkward about that, and I don't know why I feel awkward about that, but it's true. Um, But we have a hope. We have a hope. We have a hope, and if I get hit by a car tomorrow, I have a hope. I die in that hope, and I will come back with Jesus. And if I die tomorrow, don't worry about me. Don't not have hope. And if this is being recorded, maybe show this at my funeral. We don't, I'm really enjoying this verse, we don't just sleep, but we will rise again. Don't grieve like the rest of mankind. A Christian funeral, in a sense, is a celebration or a looking forward to the resurrection. Okay. Moving on to this fig tree parable, which I tell you, I, I really, at first, I was like, when I first read it, I was like, I get this parable, I completely understand it. And the more I studied it, and the more I started looking at what other people said about it, the more I realized what crazy stuff people come up with. People come up with some crazy stuff, or people really go way out beyond the text and start bringing things in from all over the place. And I just want to say, that we, there are some things that we definitely know it means, and there are some things that it could mean, but I, I, I'm not confident enough that it actually means these things. So I'm going to tell you what I do know it means, and then we can have a, I can quickly go over what it might mean. Okay? Um, so there's this there's a fig tree, and the fig tree is not producing fruit, and so it should be chopped down. It says the owner, and the, and the and the and the gardener says, give it one more year. I'll really look after it. I'll give it some manure. Um, I'll, I'll look after it, and we'll we'll see if it comes and gives you fruit next year. And so, uh, especially linked to the passage before about repenting that we just talked about, it seems that the, the, the fig tree is unrepentant people. It's people who aren't willing to bear the fruit that they were supposed to live. You know, we were born to bear fruit. We were born, we were created in God's image to be lights in the world and to, um, to show what God is like in the way that we live our lives. Um, but we don't, we don't do that. Often we don't do that. And these people certainly were not doing it. And he, so he says this warning about this fruitless fig tree and says, hey, if you're not going to bear the fruit that you were supposed to bear, you're going to be cut down. So there's a warning. There's a warning. Uh, it says there's one more year, so there's, opportuni- there's, there's, there's still time to change. So we talked about the, the fact that we can change. There's, 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 there's one year. I don't know if it's actually a literal year. I don't think so, because was, this was a long time ago. Um, so it wasn't, I don't think, one literal year, but there, there is time to change. 
We have time to change. I don't know where your heart is at. I don't know where your heart is if you're listening, but there's time to change. And also, thinking about the manure, that Jesus is investing in you. Jesus is pouring into you. He's showing himself to you. Maybe you haven't realised, but he's showing himself to you. And at the cross, he really says it clearly. He demonstrates his love for us when he dies on the, died on the cross and rose again. Now, that's what we know. Uh, but, you know, the question is, is the vineyard, I mean, there's a fig tree in a vineyard. Did you notice that? The first time I read it, I didn't notice. What's a fig tree doing in a vineyard? Yeah. Fig trees don't go in vineyards. They go in gardens or, or whatever, but they don't go in a vineyard. vineyard makes wine, and a fig tree doesn't make wine. And so what's it doing there? So you have a fig tree and you have a vineyard. And if you read Isaiah 5, um, it has this kind of, it almost feels like a song. Um, it is a song. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And it goes on. So here, God has a vineyard and the vineyard is Israel. And we see that really clearly. And, uh, and in Hosea uh, 9, verse 10, it says, When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. That's a good thing. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. You can just see his excitement, like God's excitement. When I, when I first saw you, it was like finding grapes. In the, can you imagine being in a desert, desperate for water and finding grapes? That'd be lovely. Um, can you imagine, uh, I, when I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. Imagine investing in a fig tree and suddenly it starts to bear fruit for the first time. I don't know if you are like gardening and you suddenly you have flowers, you, you plant something that's going to have lovely flowers in the spring or the summer and suddenly you start to see flowers. I've got that in my garden right now. I don't even like gardening. But the flowers are coming out. I keep looking at them. And so that was like, that was like the early Israelites. That was how he saw them. But they often did go on and disappoint. And so the, the, fig, the idea of a fig tree or the fruit of the fig tree is used for the Israelites, but so is a vineyard. And so I can't say with any certainty, as someone after church came up to me today and said, oh, I think that Israel is the vineyard. And I said, great, so what's the fig tree? And he said, that, that's, a vi- that's Israel too. And I was like, then, then, so Israel was in Israel? I'm confused. A fig tree is in the vineyard, so Israel is in Israel. So I don't think there's a perfect parallel. I think I'm trying too hard to make something from the Old Testament fit into the New Testament. And I think we just have to maybe say it's just a story on its own. It doesn't have to have a link, <laughs> direct link to the Old Testament. Um, something that is interesting is the fact that it is three years, uh, that he, it, it didn't bear fruit for three years. Jesus ministered for three years before he died. So he went around, he preached, he, he healed, he did all these amazing things. He gave them lots of opportunity to bear fruit in that time. Then he died on the cross and rose again. And then there was still some time more for them to respond. And so maybe that's that, what that one year kind of symbolises at the end. He's still giving them more time. But really, after you've seen or heard of Jesus' death and resurrection, there's not much else he can do. He's given you everything. Everything has been done for you by the time you reach the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
He's made a way for you to be right with him. He's made a way for your sin to be completely taken away. He's, he's given you eternal life. He's proven who he was by his resurrection and, and his appearances. There's not much else you, he can do. So I think that's why it says if you can't respond then, you're not going to respond and you're going to be cut off. And so who's being cut off? If it's the Jews who were cut off, this does kind of link in with Acts chapter 13 and, and what you read in Romans 9, 10 and 11 as well. And in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas, they used to go to the Jews first when they used to travel around uh, the Mediterranean area. They used to go into a city and they'd find the Jews in the synagogue and they would speak to them and they would share the gospel with them first um, just to, to make sure that they had the opportunity to respond first. Uh, and it says in Acts 13, verse 46, Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, It was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews. But since you have rejected it and judged yourself unworthy of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles is us. Unless you, someone here is Jewish or part Jewish, the Gentiles is us. It's actually because the Jews rejected it that we've been welcomed in. We've been grafted in, as Romans 11 uh, talks about it. There was no reason we could presume that. Israel were God's chosen people. But now, through, through Jesus, we are now also part of God's chosen people. We've been grafted into that. Praise God that, when, yeah, that we are part of God's chosen people. That he looks at us as that precious vineyard. That he looks at us like, um, what was it, like uh, yeah, finding grapes in the desert. So what have we learned? How should we go on? So Jesus calls us to examine ourselves. There's no excuse. It's not about looking at others. It's about looking at us. How should I be changing? What's God calling me to? He calls us to respond and repent, to change our minds. He offers us hope, hope of being able to change and hope of being in his vineyard. So we've got these little communion cups so feel free to grab them and start playing with them and getting them ready but we want to examine ourselves we want to look at ourselves and think Jesus what are you calling me to change my mind about maybe you don't b believe and you need to change your mind about who you believe in, who your authority is in life. Maybe your authority is yourself, or maybe it's some other religion or something like that. <laughs> it should be Jesus. <laughs> Jesus should be our authority, so do we need to change our mind about that? Do we need to, maybe we believe in Jesus, but we haven't actually recognised that I need to change my mind about what he calls me to, the life he wants me to live. And third thing, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you know, kind of, yeah, I've changed this, I've changed that, I no longer sleep around, I no longer do this. And, but you're not open to God continually prompting your heart to how he wants you to change and how he wants you to grow and develop still into a more godly and loving person. We thank you for your... Um, body and blood, Lord God, thank you for the way that you so self-sacrificially laid yourself down for us, the one person who didn't need to repent, Lord God. 
the one person who didn't need to die, the second Adam, we call him. He perished so we didn't have to perish. You have made a way for us to be right with you. You give us that second chance. We thank you, Jesus, for your love for us, your kindness, your offering, your sacrifice. We thank you, Jesus. Thank you for coming.